Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Well, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the second season of Searching the Sacred. As has been our rhythm as we set out on this journey of this podcast, we're going to be recording six episodes per season and then taking a Sabbath, which will be maybe a week, maybe two, maybe six. Who knows? We'll see. We'll update you as we go. But we are excited to be rounding out this season. And it's kind of been the season of random, the season where we've been all over the place from Psalm chapter one to Jeremiah chapter one to Cain and Abel to who knows what, even a talking donkey. And so we are going to round it out by reading about a priest interacting with Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 14. So Lisa, get us started. Okay, so I am reading from the Jewish study Bible and starting at verse 18. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. He blessed him saying, blessed be Abram of God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your foes into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I wanted to go towards this passage today. Actually, just selfishly, I was in a study on this last week and I wanted to keep going. So I'm going to try to try to not bring too much of that study from last week in and let it be fresh. But we landed here. It's just this random little passage that ends up coming back into play. So you can say this guy's name, uh, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Um, but his, he pops in and pops out of the narrative, but then he'll come back into play in Psalm 110, and then he'll come back into play in a huge way in the book of Hebrews. But the, but this is the story we have about him is right here in Genesis 14. And so, um, it's helpful for perhaps to like know what's happening in Genesis 14 before this point, as we kind of think about who this Melchizedek, Melchizedek, however we want to say his name is. So what has happened in Genesis 14 is there has been a battle. So there was a king um, that has enslaved basically a group of people. These are all, when we're thinking kings, we're thinking real tribal at this point in time in history. This isn't kings of big empires. This is kings of villages, small cities, small people, people groups. So one king got more powerful than the other kings, conquered them, enslaved them. Then those kings rebelled to find freedom. And then that king came back hard um, against the rebellion. And as a part of that, captured Lot, who is Abram's nephew. And so that's how Abram ends up getting involved is he gets involved in order to rescue his nephew Lot from this king. And as a part of that, he actually has participated in this battle and, and freed all of the people groups from this king that had been trying to oppress them. So he, he, comes, he steps in and in freeing Lot, frees everybody. 
and, and sort of sends everybody is sending everybody back to, to their villages and towns. And so verse 17, we started at verse 18 is like the Kings of all of these places meeting on, it's called the King's Valley. So it's sort of like, if we can imagine this scene, it's all of these leaders meeting in the aftermath of battle. And what is going to happen in that aftermath of battle? And particularly who is this, what is this Abram guy going to ask for in return for the services that he's rendered in freeing them all? Um, and, and how is all of that going to come into play? So as all of these kings meet for this kind of post-battle discussion, in comes Melchizedek out of nowhere. <laughs> he hasn't, his name hasn't been mentioned. Salem, we're going to talk about the meanings of these names, hasn't been mentioned. So the place he's coming from hasn't been mentioned. His name hasn't been mentioned. And suddenly he comes onto the battlefield and he does a thing. Um, so I'll just pause there because I was just talking for a long time. Any thoughts or questions come up in all of that context? I mean, it honestly just sounds like a, like a really good movie at this point. Like <laughs> I would probably sign up for Ridley Scott to direct this movie and to see all of this play out and the battle and then the meeting of the kings. I mean, it just sounds like it's made to be a movie. And I can also picture some random you know, King who wasn't really a part of the story suddenly showing up and that being a total kind of discombobulation of the situation or like, uh, kind of like, Oh, wait, wait, who's this? And I thought the, I thought the movie was going this direction, but now you're entering a new character in at this point, like what, like what's going to happen here. And I don't know enough about, um, Melchizedek to, to fully understand. So I'm, I'm so excited to see how we unpack this further to wrestle with his kind of entrance into the story. Well, and just to clarify, nobody knows that much about Melchizedek. <laughs> what we know about him is right here. And so he becomes one of those like esoteric characters that like it, people just wonder about who he is or how he came into play, where he came from. And there's lots of things that we can wonder because we're not given a lot of context. We have so much permission to play in stories like these about who, who this guy was and why he was doing what he was doing. Perfect for Midrash. I love it. Well, I think it's weird that he's a king and a priest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Say more, Lisa. Well, I mean, in my head, I think, well, I mean, King of Salem makes sense. Like he's a king. He's showing up, doing a thing. But then he's the priest of God most high. And I'm like, well, wait, <laughs> is he a Levite? And then I'm like, wait, we have, have we talked about Levites? We don't, wait, is there a line? There's not a line. And so like my brain was like trying to figure out like, well, what does that mean? Well, especially because this is the very first use of the word priest in scripture. Ooh. Oh. Um, it's about this random Melchizedek. It's not about the Levites. It's not about the first time a priest is being talked about is this priest doing this act. Um, it's so interesting because if I understand the story correctly, we have the Tower of Babel. We have the people scattering across the face of the earth. Then we have like a long time before Abram is called to go to a distant land that I will show you. And Lot goes with him. And now there's a priest of the Lord. Like who's following the Lord at this point? Because everybody was not following the Lord. And that was kind of the miracle of Abram is that he actually listened 
to the voice of the Lord to go. And so somebody else is listening to the voice of the Lord. I am kind of kerfluffled by it all. Well, and somebody in the group last week said it this way of like, okay, we just, after being introduced to the story of insiders, like Abram's going to be an insider right now, right, right close to the beginning, we have this outsider who seems to know who God is. And so what is it to kind of hold that insider outsider differently than we tend to, to say, even if someone's being chosen, does that mean that God's only speaking there or is God on the move in other places that aren't being written about in this book? Wow. That's, that's good because that can preach to communities, right? I mean, that can preach to churches that can preach to groups of people that think they're on the inside of the inside and that they're the ones with all the knowledge. And if they're not open to the voice of God coming from outside of them, they may miss what God is up to because God is at work. And so, oh, I love that. There's lots of good implications there. And amongst him being the first priest, we have actually a whole bunch of first things happening in this passage. So let's talk about some of those first things um, and names. So actually let's talk about names first. So Melchizedek or Melchizedek is, Melech is king. So he's a, he is a king. Not only is he a king, but king is in his name. <laughs> That's Lisa's point of it's clear he's a king. So he, king, he is a king and king is a name. And what he is king of, his name means king of Sedek, which is justice or righteous, like righteousness, justice, justice. I think we've talked about that before. This correct alignment with God is his name. So he is king of justice as his name, and then he's being given the title of king of um, Salem, which, which is Shalem. And maybe if we pronounce it with the S-H, we start to recognize that what he is then king of is Shalom. Um, shalem is from Shalom, that verb at the root of Shalom, of to make complete, to make whole, to bring peace, to to rest, restore. So his name is King of Justice and he is King of, of restoration and wholeness and peace. And he suddenly comes onto this battlefield. And battlefields probably could use a little bit of that. And this is the first use of the word Shalom in scripture um, in any of its forms is the is this town that or place that he is the name of or that he's the king of which is a pretty big word that happened first and happened first here with this character this is the first indication of any form of this word is here that's beautiful um which the way that we study with midrash we say first use matters <laughs> um so that's that's we're kind of saying okay what trajectory is being set through this first use there is a thought if we do want to root the place he's king of in an actual place, there's a sense that this might be Jerusalem, because that is actually Jerusalem has that word shalom at the root of it as well. It's Jerusalem, um, which is it's coming from Yareth, like to aim something. So it's aiming or teaching um, peace and wholeness is the name of Jerusalem. So there would be a way to say that that's maybe the geographical place he's coming from. But we're really looking at like, these are big names. These are big words to have justice and shalom coming into play here is big. And he's a king and a priest. And it's the first use of the word priest. 
Wow. Yeah, this is this is an intense story. And then we haven't even, and you just highlighted or mentioned that in the book of Hebrews, it's going to come back um, with Jesus. And so we won't go there quite yet, probably, or we don't need to. But knowing this makes that all the more profound and important. And again, we can get to that in a minute. Well, we can start getting there. What are you seeing? So if we're jumping to the book of Hebrews, we're seeing that Jesus is being called upon our as connected to the line of or in the kind of the priestly line of Melchizedek. And I always saw that growing up and in my own initial reading of that passage as Jesus just having kind of priestly responsibility and really not diving into it much more than that because I didn't understand the Genesis story very well or the Hebrew language very well. And so it was always like, okay, Jesus is like a priest, which he has a priestly role of forgiving sins or the priestly role of connecting us to God, or he's got this. And it was kind of almost like a redundant thing because, well, yeah, Jesus is God. So of course he connects us to God. And of course he can forgive sin. So I kind of always saw it as redundant and kind of like, oh, Hebrews is just highlighting something nice about Jesus. But when you get into the idea of, this is the first time we use the word shalom. This is the first time we are having a priest. We are using the word justice. Now, suddenly the person of Jesus and the Christ is about shalom, restoration, wholeness, and about justice, righteous living, about this way of being in the world that brings about, um, you know, kind of restoration of peoples and, and, and righting the wrongs and removing the barriers for people to be full, fully in community. And it's the first use of a priest, even before the tribe of Levi. Now we're talking about this kind of like super ancient mystical connection to God that kind of goes back before any human construction of it whatsoever. And that kind of is Jesus, right? Like it's, it's, it's not a modern thing. It's not a religious thing. It's not an organized thing. It's a thing. It's a mystical reality and now suddenly the Hebrews passage about Jesus being connected to Melchizedek just takes on so much depth for me in this moment. Well, I think that that what you're highlighting there, regardless of how people are holding their faith in Hebrews and Jesus, like there's lots of wrestle that could happen there to see this priest as outside the organized system with which we tend to view priests is helpful. So this is before this is before the Levitical priesthood and the book of Leviticus is before this is before there's a people group. All there is is a Brahm. A Brahm doesn't even have a kid at this point. It's just a Brahm early in the story. There's no, there's also no Christian priest. There's, we don't have the Catholic church. We don't have any, so any construct of priest, this is before that. And what is that kind of priest that exists outside of a system, the way you think of a system, but there's some version of connection to God. There's some mediation happening. There's some role being played, even outside all of those structures that we tend to, to think about. Yeah. I think that's so powerful because so much of my life in a good way, and I, I mean this in like the most complimentary way possible, so much of my life of faith has been centered around a, an institution or a group of people or a doctrine or a theology. And it's been kind of put into certain parameters that have really helped given shape and meaning and helped me understand things. And, but at the same time, there's always been a wrestling like, a, but what if, or who else, or why not, or what if, and all these questions have been swirling, and what this is kind of freeing up is that 
Yes, God can be found in the temple or in the tent of meeting or in the tabernacle or in the priestly line. And maybe not. Like maybe there's something else. Maybe God is found. Maybe the connection is also elsewhere. And that's really exciting. And maybe nerve-wracking. I don't know. Maybe both. Well, nerve-wracking would maybe come into play with the fact that as he's the priest of the Most High God, that's a little bit ambiguous for who who Melchizedek's God is. Um, Most High God isn't a term that's been used so far. Um, the word God here is L. That's a general generic use for God, a word for God that has been used in the scripture. El Elohim has been used, but it can apply to false gods. It can apply to, it's a, it's a general word for God. It's not the specific name of the specific Hebrew God and most high, um, Elian hasn't, again, it hasn't been used yet. So when we get into the Psalms, most high God will be used. Elian will be used, but Melchizedek is the first one naming this. So you kind of have a question when he comes into play, who is this God that he's the priest of? Is it the same God as our God or not? Because it's a little bit different term than we have had. Abram in verse um, 22 says that he's swearing to the living presence, God most high. So he ties that specific name of God to that term most high God, but Melchizedek doesn't Melchizedek. We kind of have some question marks that might feel a little scary or might feel like an opening or both for who the God is. Yeah. And I think also for those listening, the kind of contextualization of this is people it's not like it is today where there's like some big massive world religions and some world religions are monotheistic like Judaism and Islam and Christianity. Um, Some are polytheistic where there are multiple gods. Um, At this time in human history, it was basically uh, polytheistic or, you know, and, and there were gods for different elements, gods for different seasons, gods for different territories. And so there was a lot of God talk going on. And so for someone to come say there's a most high God um, or to say that there's one God is a massive statement about how they are constructing reality, how they're understanding the divine. And it would have been almost like new territory. I'm sitting and thinking about the like beginning, like as we kind of talked about like New Testament, I get like, like bread and wine in lots of ways is like, oh yeah, Jesus, <laughs> bread, wine communion but then i'm like oh wait <laughs> we're way like in genesis like we're we're way before any of that and i know like if i like the word for bread like the verb root of that is war but then i was wondering about wine and but like the root for wine was like effervescent or bubbling and i was like what do those things mean like why is he bringing bread and wine like what like The bread kind of makes sense. It's a war. Like what's going on? Um, Well, I feel like you dropped something that we need to like pause because people might might be exploding. That the word word for bread is lechem, which is spelled lamed chet mem. The word for war is lacham, which is spelled lamed, lamed chet mem. There isn't verb there aren't verb markings in the Hebrew scrolls, which means that the word for war and the word for bread are the same word. 
They look the same. They are the same. And the verb that is the action and the root of both of them is laham, which is to, to fight or to make war. So I just want to kind of fill in what Lisa was bringing there and pause there to say, why would those, if we put ourselves in the ancient mindset, why would the word for bread and the word for war be the same word? It's what you're going to go to war over. You have my food. When we're in Genesis 14, when we are so early into the story, when we're in ancient people groups, the main thing you're battling over is resources and access to food and water is the most important thing. And so there's a question that arises with bread of what are we going to do with the bread that we have? Are we going to consider the bread we have to be enough? Are we going to fight for more bread? How are we going to protect our bread from others who might fight for it? Every time the, the idea of bread should bring that question. Even as we think about the acts of worship that the Hebrew people are invited into, they bring bread as an offering, which is then sort of a lot more subversive than it seems because you're offering bread instead of hoarding bread or fighting for bread. Um, and the word sort of brings that forward for what we're doing. And so here onto a battlefield into a, a field of Laham, Melchizedek brings Lechem. He brings bread to the battlefield. Um, what's there before we even talk about the wine, what's there in bringing bread to the battlefield when you weren't engaged in the battle? I mean, it, it's such a, like you said, subversive. I, I really love that. It's like, almost like he's coming in and saying, I know y'all are fighting about this kind of thing, but I'm holding a different posture, like a completely different posture. This is not something to be hoarded, protected, fought over. It's something to be given away to, to, to you, you know, it's, it's to show that we are connected. Um, almost like a reframing of the word in a way, mm. completely reinstituting what it actually means. It's kind of a beautiful moment. And to Lisa's point of how this gets carried forward or how this becomes a part of the story, we read bread and wine, we don't think much of it. We haven't seen bread and wine together before this point. Again, in the first, Melchizedek is the first person to tie bread and wine together together in a religious symbolic act. It at has this, not happened before this point. At this stage, is wine like abundant? Like, is it like is it a precious thing? Like, to share it would be a big deal, or is like everybody has it? The this only place in scripture we have seen wine so far has already come up in a study <laughs> that we've had in the podcast that, that, uh, Jason brought us to when we were, I think it was in our, in our episode on the, uh, um, the altars of the nakedness <laughs> passage, um, because the nakedness comes into play where, with who? Noah. When Noah, good old gets naked drunk, Noah. <laughs> Noah consumed a lot of wine. Good old naked Noah. <laughs> good old naked Noah drinking wine. That is the only place we've seen wine so far in the text. So that doesn't answer the question of the place yeah. of wine in the ancient world, but the only place we've seen it so far in the text is when Noah gets drunk on it and ends up naked and having that sort of moment of shame. So now we have Melchizedek coming in, bringing that drink forward with the food that is the same as the word for bread. 
or the, the food that's the same as the word for war and bringing it out to the battlefield. I, when I think of that effervescent word for wine, so the word for wine is uh, yayin, um, and it's uh, part of effervescent. Actually, this makes me think of a TikTok that Kirk, my husband, showed me recently. Somebody had left their um, bagged wine on their counter for too long, and it exploded. Why? We don't like in the modern world. We don't think of like what's actually happening. Why did their wine bag explode? Well, I'm guessing it continued to like ferment and create bubbles and okay. gases. Well, and wine is a fermented drink. In the ancient world, you're not going to the store and buying a box or a bottle of wine that someone else has made. Like you're aware of that process. If you're drinking wine, you have made the wine or your neighbor has made the wine. You've watched it bubble. So wine has an a, a word to it, an idea of it, of that bubbling over, that, that fermenting process. And so- to me, I think of when I think of bread and wine together, and maybe it's from here, I think of it as like sustenance and abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because abundance has that sort of bubbling over, expanding sort of thing. And wine is extra sweet. Wine is intoxicating versus bread is that thing you need so much that you're going to have a war over it. Because if you don't have it, you don't survive. Mm. But it, it feels like it has a tension underneath it too, a little bit of like, well, I'm thinking about the tie to Noah is that there's this um, like consuming too much. And so I wonder too about the tension of like what you fight over, like if you want too much, if you use too much, if it, like there's this question of like, um, I, yeah, there's something in like, whether something's enough or too much or too little, like figuring well, out and, that balance. Well, and if you're, if you're holding on to wine too long, it explodes, right? Or it, it, it stretches the bag beyond what it can handle. And it explodes. Well, if the bag explodes, guess what that wine is good for? Nothing, right? It's, it's good for nothing at that point. Um, and so by him bringing it to them, he's, he's saying, if I hoard this, it's not worth anything because it just blows up and makes my house dirty. So I am not going to live in this hoarding posture because it's meant, the whole thing is meant to be given away. You know, and I think that goes back to like, Abraham, like you're blessed to be a blessing. Like I'm blessing you so you can bless others because you can't hoard blessing. You can just give it away. Right. Or you could try to hoard it, but really that just becomes selfishness and it's no longer a blessing. It's a curse. So either you give it away or it's going to spoil on you. And here is Melchizedek doing the same thing with this wine. Well, but I kind of wonder like as Melchizedek, like as he, like if I'm thinking situationally, like where we are, this is before Abram has really been the thing. <laughs> like Abram is still learning. He, but as much as he's Abram, he's not like the thing that God told him he would be. He still has to learn how to be this. And so it's almost like every encounter Abram has along the way, is like inviting him into like a learning posture. So what he hasn't done is made the decision of like, what will happen? Like he's free, like he's one, he's the victor. Everybody's coming back together. This is like a test for him of like, what kind of person are you? Like, who are you? And before he has a chance to do anything, there's this guy that pops out of nowhere and seems to kind of put into play these very, they're common items, but they're not used together. He's a priest. I don't see a priest. 
I'm guessing we haven't seen a tithe either. Like whatever is happening there. I'm sure this is the first for that too. Like all of a sudden, all these really critical things just kind of get plopped in front of Abram before he, before, before he does a big thing. And, and oh, look, after this encounter with Melchizedek, Abram says, I'm not going to keep any of the spoils of war, which I feel like you're raising that question, Lisa, is that what he would have said if Melchizedek hadn't shown up? Or is there some spiritual forces at work that bring Melchizedek into this time and this place in a way that influences Abram to do what Abram should have done? But like, would he have done it without Melchizedek? Right. Well, because we always want people to do the right thing. Right. Like there's this, this idea that like, suddenly we'd always, always know what to do. We'd always do the right thing. And that's not true. (laughs) Like we don't know until we know. And that is true for people in the Bible. Like Abram is still just a guy. Like there's some special things about him, but he's, he has some stuff to learn. I I love the, like, I love the idea that there's a Melchizedek that just pops in and like Abram needed that, that he needed that at that moment to like, that is because that's gotta be a big choice, right? In some way, like him saying like, I'm not keeping any of your stuff <laughs> after you I mean, won. It's massive. It's a massive moment, right? I mean, we're talking about the establishment of like, I mean, we're not even at the point where we're calling this the Jewish community or the Israelites. I mean, we're not even close to that yet. But we're talking about Abram, who becomes Abraham, who is the father of not just one religious heritage, but multiple religious heritages. This doesn't happen if he suddenly becomes like the next conquering king on the block. I'm going to throw my weight around. I'm going to keep all the spoils of war and it's going to all be on me. Forget this God that wants to offer me blessing, that wants to outnumber, you know, my descents be as numerous as the stars. I'll make the stars. Like, no, no. Instead, we get Abram, we get Abraham, we get the father of many nations, probably because he actually listens and leans into kind of this kind of antithetical, completely countercultural way of existing, which is because Melchizedek does what he does and helps him see a different path. Which that kind of gets into the name, I think of, so Mel, we, he's got the word King twice, right? He's got it in his name and he's, so he's, he's the King of justice. He's the King of, of peace and wholeness. That word King Melech, the verb there is it's to reign or to rule, but implied in that is also this idea of taking counsel like being wise, like having the right to reign or rule because of the way you're seeing the world. Like when we think about that as a verb. Um, and so it, it's this, I feel like he sends somebody who's like taken the counsel of, of what justice looks like, taken the counsel of what shalom looks like. And he's bringing it forward in that same giving of counsel to Abram at this point. Let me show you Abram what it looks like to do this well. I'm going to bring bread and wine out to this battlefield and I'm going to offer it to you. And then I'm going to bless you. That's that's what it looks like to bring justice and peace. Go and do well, like and, <laughs> and not to fast forward too much, but maybe to kind of get us to that next space in the story, we 
we see Abram give a tenth of what he has to King Melchizedek. But then we have the king of Sodom saying, well, then give me the spoils, right? Take, take the, the other path. And so now we have, in a way, this divergent path to hold up against the path of Abram. And so we see that kind of inherent tension already existing within this story. Well, because when you think of the king of Sodom, there's a way that he's being sort of just, um, again, this hasn't, Sodom hasn't been destroyed yet. We're still several chapters from that. So, so there's maybe still an opportunity here. Like we don't have to think of this as like a depraved human, (laughs) but what we can think of is he's a regular king ruling in a regular way. So what he does is he brings a different message to Abram. He says, give me the persons, but keep the spoils for yourself. Meaning he's thinking of this as a negotiation need and opportunity. Abram just came in as a warrior. He showed himself to be strong. I need to have a treaty of some sort with Abram. <laughs> I need to show Abram my favor. And so go ahead, Abram, you keep the spoils. Just give me the persons, which means Abram now has to choose what he does choose, which is to refuse those spoils he's now been offered. It's going one step further than just taking them. Now he's actually been offered them. And he has to choose not to take that offer, um, which again, that go, this is a big choice he's making. This is a huge deal to refuse the spoils of war when the king of that place has offered you the spoils of war, which means Abraham is looking at what he has, which is already, it's plenty. Like he has plenty. If he has enough to win this war, his resources are plenty. He walked out of Egypt with a lot in Genesis 13, but it's still- yeah, but you- but you don't leave stuff on the table. I mean, that's, right, just like, right, right. that's just like global geopolitics 101. You know, if, 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 if they're offering you something, usually you ask for more, you don't take less, right? And it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for that to be his response, except for the fact that he's just showing up differently, which is why we are holding this as such a monumental moment. So let's maybe let's look at the words that that Melchizedek says. So he's he comes forward as a priest. And once again, we we don't see this as we read these words and we think of them as not a big deal because we read them so much later in the text. At this point, no human being has blessed another human being. The only blessing that has taken point at this point of scripture is that God has blessed humans. Melchizedek is the first human we see blessing a fellow human. And so then let's look at the words he says. So he says, blessed be Abram of God most high. And then my translation says creator of heaven and earth. Uh, Lisa, what does yours say? Mine says possessor. Uh, so you were, we, what do you see? What, well, so We've we had talked a little bit about um some of this, but it's interesting because that I think of it as creator of heaven and earth. That's what I think about when I hear it. But like seeing my translation say possessor, then I was like, well, that word is kana. Like that's that's Cain. We talked about that with Genesis 4. Like that is I've acquired a man from the Lord, is how Eve names um her son. And so it's interesting to think of God as a possessor 
like that it's just a different it's a different way of coming at it is it about responsibility like there's a responsibility that god has for creation um similar to like maybe a way a, a parent like 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 eve towards cain or like even me towards my my sons like i i wouldn't say i possess them of course but i would say i have a responsibility right that someone's put them under my care to look out for them to teach them to to guard them and train them and to help them understand what it means to be human as best that i possibly can and and that's a very sacred responsibility um and as an adopted dad, I can't say I'm a creator, right? <laughs> I get to say that I uh, that I am responsible, though. But is it okay to let sometimes, like, to let it be uncomfortable? Like, do we have to make possessor be more comfortable? Because maybe there, maybe there are times when it's helpful. Like in this situation, maybe it's very helpful for everybody to be reminded that that God has a like. This isn't just that God's position might look a little different sometimes. Well, in this situation, if God is the possessor, acquirer, owner, we could use that word owner of heaven and earth, then what does that say about the spoils of war and this bread and wine and all these things we're fighting over? Like why, what would, what would that word push us to wrestle with? Ain't mine. Whose is it anyway? Why are we, are we fighting over something that's not even ours to give and to take? Oh, Which that's is a, good. Right. Super helpful for a Brahm and a guy who's being told that there will be like, there's lands and there's like great nation. Like how, how we're going to handle the things that we are entrusted with is a big deal. And, and even that, that link, I mean, can we see the Bible as being a hypertextual document even here where it's linking to itself? What if this is already a link to Cain? What if this is already a link to Noah saying there's already a path of redemption for these things? There's already a path of redemption for Noah's getting drunk on the wine with Melchizedek offering the wine. There is already a path of redemption for Cain hoarding, like holding onto his stuff too tightly. When we see Melchizedek naming that, that, that offering to heaven or, or offering the, then blessing from this, this acquirer of heaven and earth, like what if these threads of redemption and uh, just start much earlier than we think in the story? Yeah. And, and I don't think it can be highlighted enough that if we really do frame all of this under the umbrella of God is the possessor or the owner of heaven and earth, um, we're kind of putting that on the one entity being who can do that with the most benevolence and kindness and generosity and grace imaginable because i think it's so easy to overpersonalize god and when we hear possessor i mean i instantly clench up because my mind goes back to like slavery and like any form of the word possessor or owner just triggers that mentality and i can't imagine any owner or possessor being a good thing because all I've experienced in human history or read about is that it is it is negative towards people, especially people that society has most commonly marginalized and oppressed. But when you're talking about God, it's really awkward to use that word, except for the fact if God is actually generous and is actually responsible 
in the most beautiful way imaginable, always wanting good. Um, and it, it, it allows us, I think, the freedom inside of God's creation to hold possessions differently because we know that God is holding them differently. Well, it's also this, I mean, again, contextually speaking, Abram's family was like, he had to go rescue his family, right? Like there's a, there's a justice reason why Abram is doing what Abram is doing. Nobody faults Abram if Abram is like, I'm taking the whole thing. Like that, you, you guys did some, this is bad. What you did was wrong. I love how you censored yourself. I did. <laughs> There's only so many swearing and censoring we can probably do on podcasting. <laughs> um, but like, I just, because it's also, it, it seems to me, like it reminds me of the thing, like there's, there's a natural thing of revenge. There's a natural thing of like, um, there's just it's a- cycle of violence, yeah. Yeah, like it just is. There's some, it is really hard to think about that this introduction to the king of justice, the king of peace, means that the winner does not take off. Mm. It means that the winner actually goes, you know what? I don't want that. Yeah. I just wanted, I just wanted my family. That's all, that's all I wanted. That's all I came for. That's and deep. Like, how, how does that change our conversation around what justice looks like? Mm. What peace looks like? We're just Ooh. sitting with that for a minute. <laughs> You know, I remember learning about kind of Roman history in the first century, and you had this phrase, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was basically like, we're the biggest, baddest on the block, and nobody messes with us because then you get obliterated. And that was the peace of Rome. It was like a threat. And Christ comes along and and talks about, um, you know, the kingdom of God is, is fundamentally different. It's an upside down, backwards, you know, inside out, like totally different construction of reality. It's you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. It's a kingdom of forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. And love looks like laying down your life for, you know, your enemy and turning the other cheek and all of these dynamic things that we read about in the, in the New Testament. And here we have, in a way, that moment, right? Which is why I think, again, going back to linking Jesus with Melchizedek, like makes so much sense. Because if Jesus is the fullness of God in human form, representing like all of who God is, yeah, it would make sense that Melchizedek as the first priest, as the king of justice, as the king of Shalom, is embodying that very beautiful, um, non-violent, non-retributive um, end of the cycle of violence. So Lisa, I love that you're pointing to that. But it also does a thing where you're like, well, what a, it maybe wasn't Jesus, like maybe Jesus wasn't the prototype. Ooh. Ooh. Now you're messing with the book of John. I don't know now, if you can do now that. I'm kicking. I know I'm kicking at that tire of heresy. Like I got it, but I do want, like, but this is showing us like that because there's a narrative that sometimes happens, especially in Christian community around the Old Testament that tell like, that's this, that somehow everything that's happening in the Old Testament is like, God is angry or vengeful or all these other things. Like we, we do this, like, it's like this. And then it changed. And it was like this. And Jesus is all these things. But what we're seeing here is that there's, 
that imagery is here. Yes. The invitation to consider this is, it's not new. Jesus isn't doing something necessarily new, but there's a way that Jesus is calling back and saying, hey, remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's here. That's, this is a part, this is mm-hmm. a part of the trajectory that's always been there. What if Melchizedek is showing us what priests were always supposed to be? Priests, what if the role of a priest has always been and was always supposed to be to bring communion to a battlefield? And again, and- to, <laughs> to kick at the tires of heresy a little bit, depending on what tradition you're, you're from, Christ isn't the last name of Jesus. Christ is a title given to Jesus. And we may need to at times separate those two things. What does it mean to have a human in history, Jesus, who was walking and talking in the first century, who we can hold, as the Bible says, as the fullness of God in human form, showing up, sacrificing, loving, sharing about the kingdom of God, healing people, all those beautiful things that we read about. And he is the Christ who, as John talks about in the first part of his, of his book, is the prototype. The Christ is what always has been this way of the divine entering into the flesh of the earth, into the soil of the now, of the material world. And so maybe Melchizedek is an expression of Christ-likeness, to not make him the Christ, but to say he's a Christ-like figure who shows up in humanity to help them understand what it really means to be human in the face of what could be a very detrimental moment. And that, that could be, that could be beautiful. Don't we, we get to see this. We get glimmers of this. I think actually when I get, if I'm thinking about like, where are modern day Melchizedek's, I think of the, I, I think of like the, the frontline chaplains that are standing into the spaces of justice and are there to provide care. Oh, that's good. Right. Like the people who are a part, who are part of a movement and they're there to support like the justice aspect of things. It's not about, um, it, it's just about, because prov- in lots of ways, Melchizedek is what he's doing is reminding everybody of like, this is, this is what's this is what's at hand. This is what's happening, and this is what we're doing. It, but he's reminding them out of the way that he's caring for them. There is a way that bread and wine is actually it's caring for them. Mm-hmm. Like there's a message underneath that. It, it reminds like it's the like in language of hugs. <laughs> like there's certain things that are just care for other people. But as I was looking at that passage, I noticed like Abram takes on the language. Like Melchizedek does a blessing and then Abram, like, like Abram affirms the thing. Like he adds, yeah, he, like he adds the Lord to it. Like he, he adds the, the living presence (laughs) to that, but he, but he keeps it as like present God most high possessor of heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. Like there's a way that Abram is like, yeah, but which that brings it to the, like the power of words too. Like we talked about the power of the bread and the wine that's being brought, but Melchizedek also uses these words and these words seem to impact Abram. 
And I feel like what you're like, what the tension we're holding here, but, and I'm going to sort of mediate between your two voices in this is to say, there's a way of, of making it about Jesus and the Christ that can be helpful because of the way it helps us see how the Christ has existed across time and space beyond the human person of Jesus. There's also a way that expanding that can take out the human responsibility to act like Melchizedek, to say, if we let Melchizedek be a human, then we're asked the question, how can we be like him? And you started saying this bit with saying Christ-like, I think Jason as well, is to say, sometimes our theology goes too much in one direction or the other, where because it's all about God, then it's not about us. And we just get to default, default to God doing all the acts of justice and peace. And there's a way of saying, if we make it only about us, that all of the justice and peace in the whole world is on our shoulders and we have to do it all. And, but, and neither of those really maybe holds this God as possessor of heaven and earth. Like God, there is a, there is a large story and we have a role to play in it. And there's a way in tying it to chaplains. It's saying there are real humans alive today who are doing what Melchizedek did. How can we be like that with our, with the bread and the wine and the care and, or with the words like Melchizedek uses words that carry a Brahm. And I think a lot like in, in our culture, that's so there, there's so much anger right now. How often are we walking into places and blessing people? Mm. What does it look like to walk into places, even contentious places, even places where that are fights are being fought. And that doesn't undo. There's a tension here too, right? Sometimes you got to say hard words to people and are there also times to just bless people and to say, I see you. God sees you. You're valuable. Remember who you are. I love that you're naming the tension that we can sit in and how we can gravitate towards those poles of it's all on me or it's all on God. And I'm, I'm definitely the type of person who, if I can't figure this out and like solve it and like start enacting this, the, the solution, then there's a part of me that's like, well, then what am I doing here? You know, if I can't like figure out how to solve injustice, then it's like, well, okay. So you want me to have that conversation? Like, great. Like what difference is that conversation going to make? And I think, I think what you're reminding us of is that, yes, it's an important thing to think about how do we move past injustice in our world? And it takes one conversation at a time. Like, don't think that you're going to solve it in like a weekend. That's really ridiculous. But also get to work um, because it's needed. And I just love that you're kind of inviting us into that space. Well, there's there's this way to I think I so there's um one of my one book that I really love is the book by um John O'Donohue the art of blessing the day no that that one's not that of blessing the day it's uh, to bless the space between us the art of blessing the day is another book I know the title of another book because I end up reading books on blessings or like reading blessings um Jan Richardson is another great source of blessings but I, it just feels like there's something in me that just really longs to recapture that, to say as much as there is big work to do, there's also this work of just seeing each other, 
of just speaking words that root and uplift the person across from us and to trust that that does something good. I mean, even, even here, there is like all that, all that, all that Melchizedek does is he brings the bread and wine and he speaks these words and Abram instantly gives a 10th of everything. Abram says, I'm not going to take anything. Like there is, there is like a, a justice and a wholeness that comes that doesn't have to be like reached for. It was sort of the natural outpouring. And I don't want to, that's, there's tension there too. Cause that's not, it's not always that easy, mm-hmm. but what if sometimes it could like, what if sometimes people just need a word of blessing? I don't know. That's, I guess my heart needs that today. Cause I just keep going back to that right now. So if it's a Brahm giving the tithe, no, is it? As a spontaneous, it seems as though a Brahm is giving a tithe as a spontaneous offering because he has been so blessed by the actions of Melchizedek. Yeah, well, maybe that's how you know you're doing it right when somebody spontaneously gives you tithe. <laughs> <laughs> and every pastor in the world said, Amen. Well, that's not how pastors do it. There's no spontaneous tithing. It's like you're told to tithe. <laughs> like, what if you just let people like feel it? It's you gotta you gotta bring the <laughs> Yeah, that was before mortgages. That was before mortgages. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not. <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole rabbit trail there there is a whole rabbit trail there well i mean when we i, I want to go back to this question for a bit maybe because it still feels unresolved for me but um like when i think about lechem and lecham this idea that bread and war are the same words i what makes me think about is what is that for us today and how can we be like Melchizedek? So there are still battles being fought over something that is meant to be a provision for all. As we think about those two words, bread is meant to be accessible to everybody. And yet it is the thing that is causes war in the ancient world. And I feel like humanity hasn't developed that far past that. It just might not be about bread anymore. Although for some people it is about literal bread. <laughs> But I'm I'm feeling challenged to say what what would those things be today where it would be the same word like it's so tied that it'd be the same word, and how can I and how can we be like Melchizedek in that and instead of instead of fighting or hoarding or guarding all of those things that we offer, and we see where that thing is being fought over and we step in and we are generous and we give blessing and we give presence and we give away ours of that thing. Like I think about things like loneliness and belonging and how much fighting is about trying to find a place to belong. So what if we gave our belonging away and we're generous with connection? Um, and that's one po- thing that pops up, but. I, I think it's power. Mm. And that feels a lot more complicated, which is probably why I like power, because I feel like it would be something you got to, it doesn't feel as easy as bread in some ways, mm-hmm. but like, I think, but power is the thing that feels like the most central conversation that we have right now is like, I, I don't, cause it's not just autonomy. It's not just like my own personal choice, but like it is power to do just, I don't know. It feels like there's a wrestle for me of like, 
where, how do we, how do we use our power? Right. Where everyone is fighting over power, how can we step in and give power away? And feel safe about it. Feel good about it. Feel. Well, live with an abundant mindset, right? Like I I kept thinking of the idea of opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, you can see this with like opportunity for education, opportunity for, you know, board seats, opportunity for, uh, you know, jobs. Uh, You can even look at it like opportunity to enter into markets. You know, you look at some of people in the developing world, part of the problem is that they just have no access to global markets to actually improve businesses and to improve financial structures for their country or for their village or for whatever it is. And so opportunity is one of those things that people are hoarding, right? Let's keep that circle small. Who has the opportunity to get the education, to get on the board seat, to do all these things? But what if we lived in an abundant mindset of the opportunities are going to be there just because other people have access to the opportunity, just because other people are invited to the opportunity doesn't mean that there's not enough room for voices to be heard or space to be created for us. So maybe we, um, maybe there's work for us to keep doing in this story for ourselves to say, as as Melchizedek became this sort of esoteric character that people kept thinking about, he's he shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> like he's, um, it's not just the Book of Hebrews. I wonder if that's because, like, what if he's a character we're meant to rediscover today for this very conversation that we're sort of ending with? Is what is that role that we could play in the world around us, where we see where things are happening and we step in with justice? We step in with shalom. We step in with bread and wine. We step in with blessing. And we see what the possessor of heaven and earth does with that. Mm. Yes and amen to that. And good luck with that. Because that's hard space too. But you gotta try. You just, somebody's gotta try. Somebody has to be the weirdo showing up. Let's all be weirdos. (laughs) This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching Safety. Thank you.